0: There is a quality bias that um, that has overtaken a lot of the desires for investors, and so the reason we suspect that's happening is there's a fear that you know, given this historical rate hiking cycle around the world, there's a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, to hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PJM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Pushkin. Some investors, and this is certainly true of us financial journalists, have just a strong negativity bias. But to ruthlessly cop the title of today's Unhedge newsletter written by Robert Armstrong, it's time to smile, damn it. The U.S. labor market, for those of you worried about inflation, it is cooling off a bit. Today on the show, we talk about the latest from the labor market, what it means for U.S. investors, and because we are financial journalists, we have a few things to worry about too. This is on Hedge, the markets and finance show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in the New York studio, joined at long last by Katie Martin, markets editor, who has returned from her months-long sojourn to God knows. Where, where did you go, Katie? I have no idea.
1: Greece. I made oh. my own special contribution to the Greek economic comeback. I know you've been <laughs> bullish. How was your,
0: your vacation, Katie? Your Excuse me. Your, how was your sabbatical?
1: delightful. Thank you. I did some island hopping around Greece. Quite a lot of Americans there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a cheap vacation, right? I've heard that's the main appeal.
1: It's cheap. It's beautiful. It's kind of very exotic if you're American, I imagine. And uh, yeah, just charming. Delightful,
0: <laughs> do it. It's good to have you back, Katie. It's good to have you back. The little digs in America. <laughs> yeah. Much needed. Much needed. Well, t- today, Katie, we are talking three labor market indicators that kind of capture where we are. Payroll growth, the quits rate, and wage growth. And then we'll talk a bit about what it means for investors and what else lies on the horizon. Starting out with payrolls, I mean, this is the big marquee number. The August jobs numbers, which came out on Friday, showed the U.S. economy adding 187,000 jobs last month. You know, I'd call that relatively strong and healthy if we were in a normal economy, which we certainly are not. But, uh, yeah, overall, not bad. I think it's spawned a lot of talk of Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold.
1: Yeah. And, you know, because people in markets are, are terrible human beings, I'm only joking, <laughs> uh, but because they're terrible human beings, they don't want too many jobs. They don't they don't want the jobs market to be absolutely on fire. They want it to be kind of nice and healthy and simmering along, but not just adding gangbusters numbers of jobs every month because then it looks like the economy is overheating. So this set of numbers, this data it hits that spot it's good, but it's not too good. It's got some elements that are slowing down, but they're not not—they're not cratering. So there's something for everybody in here. But as you say, it's Goldilocks, right? The porridge is not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. It very much adds to the soft landing narrative that's really taking hold in markets now.
0: Yeah. And, and just to add a little bit of context there, Carl Riccadonna, who's a great economist over at BNP Paribas, has you know, made the point that 100,000 is the average historical pace at which Low payrolls growth translates to rising unemployment. So, from the perspective of markets, what you want is payroll growth that's above that Mm 100,000 threshold. So, you know, payroll growth that's going to sustain consumption, you know, keep the economy chugging along, but also not payrolls growth so hot that it has negative implications for perhaps inflation. Obviously, that's been the main worry recently. So, that's, you know, this 187,000 number is about exactly where I think markets would like it, right? It's at a pace that suggests inflation pressure may be diminishing, but well above the level, 87,000 jobs above the level at which you'd expect unemployment to rise. It's a good place to be overall.
1: Exactly. It, it just feels like a nice, comfortable place.
0: So that's payrolls. The next number is the quits rate. It's the, the percentage of workers in the monthly job turnover survey that are deciding voluntarily to leave their job. Uh, this absolutely surged after the pandemic began. All this talk about the Great Resignation. Mm. Well, the Great Resignation's over. The quits rate is back at 2.3%, exactly where it was in late 2019. That's a big substantial cooling, Katie.
1: You know, it's like you were saying, I think the jobs market is becoming sort of normal. (laughs) Yeah. You know, some of these weird distortions and extremes just really seem to be falling away.
0: And quits matter because it's really an indication of, you know, how empowered do workers feel to say, screw this! I'm out of here. Right? That is yep. kind of the ultimate indicator of you know, uh, p- workers have leverage. And we're, again, we're not at a point where workers have you know less leverage than usual. It's just sort of coming down from from a period of quite elevated leverage during the pandemic, during the huge labor shortage we're seeing. As that gap between labor supply and demand comes in line, quits are back to normal, normal amount of worker leverage for an expanding economy. Yeah,
1: exactly that. Exactly that.
0: So that's the quits rate. And the last one is wage growth. This is coming down, but it's still quite elevated. Uh, the Employment Cost Index, which is the Fed's favorite wage growth number, that grew in the second quarter this year at 4.6%. How would you describe 4.6%, Katie?
1: <laughs> you know, the the, the point is, is where we've come from, right? And so, you know, anything that looks like it's getting somewhat more under control. Yeah, it's still a long way away from where, you know, the, the Fed would like it to be. But you know, we're we're getting there.
0: Yeah. And to your point, a year uh, a year ago, second quarter of 2022, the same indicator, of the employment cost index was at five point seven percent.
1: Crazy. So we've come down
0: a full percentage point in a year. Again, more to this point of labor market normalization. Yeah. And like you, you know, like you said earlier, that could have potentially beneficial inflation news. But the question is, at least for the purposes of our podcast, how are markets taking this?
1: So my sense is that team soft landing is in control. The idea that we're going to get a recession, particularly in the States this year, is just is increasingly being pushed out. The thing is, that's kind of good news and bad news. And what we're starting to see some uh, big multilateral organizations talk about now is, listen, Because the US economy has been so resilient, we're not going to see inflation come back to target completely, very quickly. And so monetary policy is going to remain pretty restrictive, as they say, interest rates are going to stay pretty high. You know, if you've, if you're hanging everything on the notion that the Fed and other central banks are going to start cutting interest rates quickly, then you're going to be disappointed. And all things being equal, that does store up some problems for further down the line. It means that, you know, companies that have borrowed, whether that's loans or in the bond market or whatever, they're going to find that when they come back to borrow again, when they try and roll that over, it's going to be much more expensive. And so there is this idea that a recession has been not cancelled, but just delayed, or that at their very least, slower growth is coming over the next 12 months or 18 months or so. So, it, it just feels like we're going to reach quite a sort of, you know, a bit of a gooey patch in markets where we're kind of not going anywhere for quite a long time because there's just not enough upward momentum. But there's also not this recession that people keep warning about.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's in some ways that's the inverse of, you know, not too hot, not too cold. Goldilocks scenario is, well, it's neither hot enough for a particular narrative to take hold nor cold enough for a particular narrative to take hold.
1: But let me tell you a little nugget that, uh, that I saw here from, from Bank of America saying that, you know, because inflation just won't go away, we've still got some downward pressure on U.S. government bond prices. Yeah. And so, you know, yields are still pretty elevated. And the bank was saying that it looks like we're on course for the third consecutive annual loss on the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Mm. And how many times has that happened in the 250-year history of the U.S. Republic, Ethan Wu? Hmm. Zero. Zero. <laughs> so, you know, we, we we haven't seen anything like this since 1787. And, I, I, you know, people in markets love really long term charts and really, really long term statistics. And there's a really good one for you that we, we haven't seen this sort of type of pullback in, in bond markets that we've seen now for the past getting on for three years for a super, super long time.
0: Yeah, I, I like a long term chart as much as anyone. But I mean, sometimes when I see these like <laughs> Interest rates <laughs> since the dawn of time charts. I'm just like, how many times were they setting interest rates in 500 AD? You, you, you know what I mean? It's not like they had a uh, monthly. Are meetings. you letting
1: this get in the way of a good <laughs> statistic, <laughs> Ethan Wu? Come on, man.
0: But uh, there's kind of a big picture point on, on on bonds, and and as you point out, Katie, this has been kind of you know in some ways like the dominant market story since uh, I mean maybe late July. Yeah, the ten-year yield was in the threes. As recently as July, and now it's at 4.25 percent. That's a pretty substantial run up, and that creates all these concerns about, uh, you know, are higher yields going to weigh on financial stability? Are they, they going to weigh on stocks? Yeah. Uh, and then just as well from the perspective of bond investors, right? If you buy a Treasury bond, your return comes from two sources. One is coupon clipping. You get a little interest payment every every so often from holding the bond. That's the that's the yield or the coupon. Uh, but there's there's also another source of returns, which is capital gains. If you resell mm. the bond on the secondary market and the price of it goes up over the period you've you've held it, you can sell it for a nice little return. And we've had, I think this is really important to say, we've had from the perspective of bond investors, 40 years of a bond bull market overall, 40 yeah. years exactly. of where bonds tend to gain value on the secondary market over you know two to three to four to five years. Now it may be that that bond bull market... Has ended. That we're entering a period where rates go up and down, as opposed to just down, right? And that really changes the way bond investors have to approach this market.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, and it sets the tone for everything else. Now, it's kind of it's fine as long as stocks are doing well, which they are this year, and they weren't last year. That was like the major problem that both of these asset classes fell at the same time. But nonetheless, it it really changes the equation and it it really means that, you know, why should I bother buying stocks or real estate or, you know, whatever other kind of risky stuff there is out there when I can get this sort of return purely from coupon clipping in in the bond market?
0: Yeah. Buy and hold the maturity seems to be an increasingly tempting option where where you don't do any buying, you don't do any selling, you don't watch the price. You buy something, you forget about it. You clip coupons. Beautiful. So that's where we are in the markets right now. But, you know, as financial journalists, we got to bring the negative news. It's just it's, you know, it's in the it's in the contract. Katie, what are your reasons for relentless negativity?
1: Yeah, as you say, we're just miserable people by design. It's just like a thing with journalists. We can't we can't help but find things to potentially worry about down the if line. If I don't
0: bring up bad news, they dock my pay ten percent. It's just it's written in there. <laughs>
1: uh, That's how yeah. it works. There's a couple of things. One of them is not overlooked, but it is super important, which is China. Hmm and the 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 great kind of rebound from the reopening there is very very much not happening it doesn't matter what, what set of data you look at at the moment that's looking really shaky um the property sector is still in trouble there's a big kind of property developer Country Garden that managed to avoid defaulting on its debt but kind of only just and um, there's been a whole series of extended deadlines The authorities in China are really kind of trying to jazz up the property market, support the economy. But there's quite a mess over there and it's still going to be interesting to see how much that infects the rest of emerging markets or affects major markets. It's definitely something to keep a close eye on. The other thing to keep a close eye on is water. Mm. There's, like, there's, there's, not a, there's too much of it in some places and not enough of it in others. Keep a really close eye on the Panama Canal. There's quite a few analysts that we've spoken to recently who say that investors are really complacent about the potential effect of El Nino, hmm. about the possibility of greater disruption in the Panama Canal. This could be a problem for food prices. It could be a problem for supply chains. Um, You know, one analyst was saying to us that we should all be watching the depth of like the Rhine River and the Panama Canal just as closely as we're watching oil stockpiles, which we do, you know, on a kind of weekly basis. This is definitely a real and present risk. You know, we're going to have to start thinking about climate impacts in a very immediate form in terms of how they relate to inflation and supply chains and and all the rest of it. So, you know, I don't want to be a kind of Debbie Downer, but I do think keep an eye on the Panama Canal. Keep an eye on China.
0: Wow. So even as the labor market news gets better, uh, we financial journalists find a way to come up with bad news.
1: We just love it. Yeah.
0: All right, Katie, we'll be back in a moment with Long Short. What we want to maximize is not expected return. It's not expected wealth. It's some kind of risk adjusted wealth or risk adjusted return. And we all know that, but we have to be really careful that we don't fall into a trap of maximizing expected value or expected money or expected return. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long Short, that part of the show where we go long thing we love, short thing we hate. Katie, did you know I borrowed that construction from you when you guest hosted this podcast? Borrowed slash stole. (laughs) I like to think enhanced. I enhanced the integrity of the podcast by borrowing your very nice construction (laughs) for introducing Longshore. Whatever. Uh, Well, Katie, I am long. I am long Eds and Meds, education and medical care. It's propping up the economy. We talked about payrolls growth earlier, 187,000. If you take out roles related to education and medicine, actually payroll growth was negative last month, but- those two segments are keeping us going. Just this past weekend, I was visiting Boston. You know, it's a college town. It's bustling. Like, the targets were totally sold out. There's no inventory. Students are moving in. People are out there spending. It's keeping the economy going. And I am grateful, for one, to Ed's and Meds.
1: Hooray for students. Yes. I'm short something. I am short fried cheese. Mm. I was not previously aware how much fried cheese is involved in the Greek cuisine. <laughs> But let me tell you something, there's fried cheese with honey, there's fried cheese put in your salads, there's a lot of fried cheese. And whilst it was very, very delicious, and there's a greater range of cheese available in Greece than I've previously been expecting, I've eaten too much cheese, (laughs) and I'm short cheese, specifically fried cheese. What is your
0: favorite cheese, Katie? I need to know this.
1: Obviously, there's a lot of feta, but there's like a soft cheese, someone no doubt will email to tell us, but there's a soft cheese that you put on a Dakos salad. Very Ooh. good. Like the nice squishy kind of soft cheese. Anyway, I'm not eating any more of
0: it <laughs> <laughs> for a while. Cheese nerds, please write in with your favorite obscure <laughs> cheese that we have not heard about. We'd love to feature it on the show. Ethan.WuWU at F-T.com. Katie, thanks for being here. It's good to have you back. Pleasure. We'll have you back next Tuesday. And listeners will be back in your feed on Thursday with another episode of Unhedged. Catch you then. By the way, if you like the show, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. It really does help get the word out there. And if you're not already subscribed, I, I just don't know what you're doing. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Brian Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, and Jess Trulia ft premium subscribers can get the unhedged newsletter for free a 90-day free trial is available to everyone else just go to ft.com unhedged offer i'm ethan wu thanks for listening